alltså det var först när uh, Thor vaknade upp en morgon och sen såg han att uh, sin kära fru Siv saknade sitt hår. Han blev fundersam och tänkte att det här måste vara Lokas påfund. Så han uh, tog tag i Loke och uh, med lite konfrontation så det kan fram This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. In that intro, you just heard our guest today, Philip Lufolk, speaking in his native tongue of Swedish, and he is telling about Thor's hammer. The music on this episode is by Lear of the Crossroads, and he makes these incredible traditional instruments, which you'll hear the sounds of. And I play uh, four different pieces off of Lear of the Crossroads' YouTube channel. So definitely check that out if you're interested in buying one of these um, old, inspired instruments. Anyways, so Philip Lufolk is a blacksmith in Sweden, and he has a pretty a big following on his Instagram account where he shows um, making different um, jewelry and tools. And they all are kind of inspired by archaeology um, of Scandinavia and Norse mythology. And Philip does a really cool job of narrating them and telling the little stories of each of these pieces that he's working on. Um, so definitely check out the Instagram account. It is uh, Lou Folk, like his last name. Uh, the website is lufolk.com, and he's got a YouTube channel, which is Lufolk Crafts. All of the links will be in the show notes. Now, this is the second episode on our little Scandinavian series. The last one was at the Icelandic Museum of Sorcery and Witchcraft, hearing about Icelandic folklore. This one is going to be hearing about Scandinavian blacksmithing and metalwork, especially in the Viking era. And from there, well, you just have to wait and see. I want to say a big thank you to two folks who are new on Patreon. We've got Abby Stern and Feral Forest Folk, who I just finished doing a logo for. So thank you guys for hiring me. And everyone at the higher tiers, thank you so much. We've got Kendall Wine, Ash Barron, Rachel Hawkshaw of Topsy Farms, Alexander Kurashev, On Stanley, uh, Kaylee Lindman, Craig Kohring, Diana Gonzalez, Earl Suter, Franklin Renshaw, Heron O'Brien, Jacob Griffin, Jamie Nudd, James Mann, Jeff McLaughlin, uh, Les Paget, Kenneth Giles, Leslie Peterson Cohen, Michael Zorn, Michelle Alderson, uh, Michelle Miller, Nathan Griffin, uh, Ryan Arnold, Rambler, Ryan Goeckner, Sophie McVicker, T. Pierce, The Militant Hippie, Tristan Harper, Tyler Lively, Waddle and Dobb, Craftsman, 
the working class woodsmen, and everyone at the lower tiers. Thank you very much for helping fund this project. So for today's episode, definitely wanted to read some Norse mythology because uh, blacksmithing and metalwork in general, is it's in the mythology. So today I'm reading from a book that I reference a lot um, on this on this Scandinavian series called The Viking Spirit, an Introduction to Norse Mythology and Religion by Daniel McCoy. And I chose one of the stories about the dwarves. And the dwarves are the smiths of the Norse mythological world. And later on in this episode, I read a little more from the book. I mix it in with Philip telling the story of Thor's hammer. Um, I read the myth of the treasures of the gods. So just some quick background information on some uh, Norse mythology with some of the characters. Um, Quickly, there's Odin. He's kind of like the main god. He's kind of like the Zeus in Greek mythology. Um, There's Freya, who is the main character of this story, um, who is a fertility goddess. It looks as though in some sources, she's kind of sometimes referred to as the wife of Od, or who can be confused with Odin. It it gets a little confusing. But in other places, it says that she's like the concubine of Odin. And I think the last thing that made sense to quickly talk about is at the end of the story, um, you'll hear the deal that Odin makes with Freya. And um, it has to do with the fact that um, Odin wants the greatest warriors in the Scandinavian world. He wants them to die in battle because when they die, they will be brought to Valhalla. And he's kind of collecting the best warriors because at some point Ragnarok is coming, which is the end of the world in which the giants and the um, children of Loki will all fight the gods. And so Odin really needs his dead, you know, his dead heroes to help fight on his side. Um, And that brings up Loki, of course. Loki is kind of like the trickster god. Okay, let's read this story. Only a fragment of one late version of this myth survives. It comes from the tale of Sorli in the Flat Island book a compendium of sagas written in Iceland in the 14th century. Due to the centuries that had elapsed between the composition of the tale of Sorli and Viking religion as a living practice, the narrative in its present form has undoubtedly been corrupted by the addition of elements that weren't found in any version of the story from the Viking age. However, the basic outline of the story is alluded to elsewhere in the sources, and the actions of the characters are generally consistent with their portrayals in earlier, more reliable sources. So we can conclude that the story is ultimately woven around an authentic Viking myth. While out walking one day, Freya happened to come upon a craggy boulder that was known to be an entrance to the winding caverns where the dwarves lived. On this particular day, the rock had been left askew, and she snuck a peek down into the subterranean forges. She couldn't help but notice that four dwarves were forging a gorgeous golden necklace. 
It was almost completed and had already been inlaid with the finest, most brilliant jewels she had ever seen. Before she knew it, she had made her way down into the cave and had struck up a conversation with the smiths about their work. The four dwarves were named Alfred, accomplished, Valen, short, Berling, short beam, and Greer, bellower. They refused Freya's offers to purchase their handiwork with gold, silver, and other treasures. But when the exasperated and covetous goddess asked if there was anything, anything at all, for which they'd be willing to sell the necklace, the dwarves smiled knowingly at one another, and then back at Freya. They would only give her the necklace, they said, if she would spend one night with each one of them in turn. As repulsed as Freya was by the grimy, sooty, and just plain ugly dwarves, her lust for the necklace overcame her aversion to such an unwelcome deed, and she consented to the dwarves' terms. Four days later, Alfred, Valen, Berling, and Greer handed her the necklace, which was called Brisengamen. She took it back with her to Asgard and acted as if nothing out of the ordinary had happened. But the scheming Loki found out about Freya's necklace and how she had come to be in possession of it. He told this to Odin, who commanded Loki to pilfer the necklace from his wife and bring it to him. Loki protested, saying that Freya's bedroom was impenetrable due to how jealously Odin himself had her guarded. But this only angered the chief of the gods, and he repeated his command to Loki, this time more sternly than before. Loki gave in and sulked away. After a great deal of wayward brooding, however, an idea finally came to him. Night fell. Loki took on the form of a fly and slipped through an almost imperceptible crack in the door to Freya's chamber. Inside, he found Freya and all her servants sleeping soundly. But the goddess was sleeping on her back with the necklace around her neck and the clasp was underneath her. So Loki turned into a flea and bit the goddess on the neck. This awoke her up just enough that she turned onto one side, exposing the clasp. Loki changed back into his regular form, delicately peeled the necklace off of her neck without waking her, and tiptoed out of the room through the door without waking anyone. Freya awoke in the morning to find that her door was ajar and her precious necklace was gone. When she deduced what had happened, her shock turned to anger. After throwing on a robe, she stormed into her husband's court and demanded that he return the Brisingamen to her. But Odin was unmoved and said that because of the manner in which she had obtained the necklace, she didn't deserve to ever have it back. Unless, he added, feigning the sudden arrival of the idea, you can pit two kings— each with 20 other kings in their service, against each other. Enable great heroes to arise among men and fill the ranks of my armies in Valhalla. Freya agreed to these terms. Before long, she had incited the kings to battle, and a mighty feud ensued that claimed untold lives. The Brisingamen, unparalleled among all pieces of jewelry, became Freya's once again, and she wore it proudly from that day on. Uh, yeah, so I am living in a village uh, 
in the middle of Sweden, kind of. Uh, it's a village close to a town called Gävle. Uh, the village is uh, called uh, Storvik that I'm living in. And uh, it's, uh, it's on the ca- countryside. Mm. But uh, still, uh, it's not uh, like in the middle of the woods. Uh, we got neighbors uh, close to us. Uh, but it's a small, uh, small community here. And are you, I saw on the map, there, is there a big lake right where you are, basically? Yeah, we, we are close to a lake. That's, that's true. And um, something, so uh, as you know, I was just in Norway uh, about two months ago. And Sweden is very different on the landscape. It looks as though where you live is very forested, but pretty flat. Is that right? Like, could you describe, like, if you were to take a little trip and go into, you know, go for a hike or go into nature, like, what is the landscape like where, you know, around you? Uh, yeah, you are right. It's uh, quite flat all around here and a lot of forests. And uh, also lakes, uh, lakes and rivers. Um, it w- uh, compared to uh, like uh, the southern part part of uh, Sweden, it's uh, the landscape. It's is uh, opened and uh, it's big lands, uh, fields. But uh, the more up north you get, uh, the more forests uh, it is. Um, and it's uh, mostly pine, pine forest, pine trees. And you guys uh, got a lot of animals. Uh, yeah, we got. Um, we used to have uh, deers on my on my uh, backyard here. We see quite often. Um, but besides that, we got uh, the. Um, the common, common uh, animals, their moose, uh, mooses, wolves. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean that's not very common for where I live. We don't have moose or wolves. We've got coyotes and deer. So that's kind of incredible. So the, even though you're in a little town, it's possible to see a wolf. Uh, you gotta you go, gotta into, go the into the forest. Yeah. Uh, at least a, a a little bit. Okay. 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 Well, that is pretty awesome. Now, we're going to obviously be talking a lot today just about blacksmithing and and kind of everything you share on your Instagram account, which is you do a really good job at. Um, but maybe right before that, I really do like to kind of, um, kind of travel with the podcast and talk about the culture of different places. I mean, certainly when we were in Norway, it was so amazing to experience um, some of like the local foods. Um, is there... Is there anything that, you know, might be a local food in the region that you live that might not be normal to, you know, someone over here in America or Canada? Like I know in Norway, they had um, brunost, I think is the brown cheese, a sweet brown cheese. Is there anything, mm, is there anything maybe, that comes uh, to mind? This, uh, it's a special kind of, uh, um, it's, it's a fish, um, or it's a special way that they make this fish. It's called the surströmming. Uh, that is uh, 
might be uh, that it's only find he- found here in Sweden. So that is, uh, uh, I'm not and sure. Kn- and do you know what t- they, how they do it? Like, what is, uh, uh, is it a special drying or? Uh, yeah, uh, it's fermented. Oh man, that uh, must be intense. Yeah, I have actually never tasted myself, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, I would like to. <laughs> oh, I would like to too, even though it's it, I might only take the tiniest little droplet. When we were in Norway, there was a we were staying at a little town on the fjords called Balastrand, and across the fjord was another town called Vik, where they make this special cheese, which is called um, um, Gamalost. Does that mean rotten cheese, gamalost? Uh, well, uh, more like uh, old cheese. Old cheese, you okay. Old, <laughs> yeah. And it, and it is made from, um, I guess, the sour curd, so they've kind of gone a little off. And I'll tell you what, just smelling this cheese, it smelled like animals. It smelled like a barn, like that. And tasting it, it was like just tasting the wool of an animal. It was definitely very cool. It's very cool to culturally taste flavors that you're not used to. But anyways, I just thought that'd be a kind of a cool thing to hear a little bit about. Now, let's get into like everything that you do. So you're a blacksmith. I mean, um, I guess like where do you even do it? Do you have a garage? Like uh, tell me a little bit about your blacksmithing shop and how you got into it. Um. Uh, at the moment, I have a uh, blacksmithing shop that I'm working in. Um, when I started, I started on my uh, backyard. I had an outside forge, um, but now I have. So I have worked <laughs> step by step up to to a. So I now got roofs, a roof over my head, and walls around me. So I have a workshop. And. Um, are you full time? Is that your full time work? Yes, it's my full time. Incredible! Congratulations. That's always Thank a major achievement. Yes, it is. Uh, now it started. Yeah, it started as a uh, hobby, uh, and then uh, since then uh, it have developed uh, developed into a part time job, and uh, now it's my full time since a couple of years, years back. Well, that is incredible. And, um, I guess, so like, you know, you talk about a lot of different things that I find interesting on your Instagram account. You talk about like the Viking history of smithing, and then you talk about Norse mythology and, um, the history part. So I've been reading a book called the Viking age, everyday life during the extraordinary era of the Norsemen. And it talks about how a smith in the Viking era would have been a very important role in a community and that um, some of the most wealthy Scandinavian graves that have been exhumed have been that of smiths, um, metal workers. That is so neat. I mean, so do you, what do you know about just kind of like what was a metal worker's role in the Viking era? Uh, yes, he had an important role and uh, a high status, uh, which you can see in in uh, grave finds and uh, and also other other signs uh, here in Sweden. 
um, many like street names can be smith, uh, blacksmith streets and uh, the um, villages can uh, have the smith inside its name uh, so it uh, suggests it's uh, have been a important uh, profession um, back then on early iron age uh, it was a very expensive metal uh, iron itself it was uh, more value valued than uh, silver for instance uh, at one at one part do you know why like is it because of what you could make with iron like what what were these metal workers making with iron uh, they did forge uh, mainly tools or and uh, useful items uh, like uh, uh, nails uh, rivets and uh, tools uh, and uh, for uh, household like uh, uh, maybe you needed something to the kitchen, uh, some uh, utensils or uh, yeah, anything you you need. But uh, since uh, since the iron back then was uh, so expensive, uh, it was uh, only the high high rank who who uh, used iron items. Did the did the lower class? Or you know the poor? Did they have some substitute, or they just didn't have any metals at all? Uh, they did. You can see on um, some tools, uh, for instance, uh, they might have used more wood instead of uh, making the whole tool out of uh, iron. So they made a part of the tool. Uh, out of wood and then only used uh, iron where it was uh, needed. Okay, okay. And so would that have been something like your axe? Uh, yeah, axe uh, is one thing, but also uh, uh, I can see in kitchens uh, over or over the fireplace uh, um, where you hang the uh, um, the frying pans, etc., uh, you might, <clears throat> if you are rich, you could have an iron chain, but uh, if you are not uh, have the money, you could use a a wooden stick and with only an iron piece in the in the very end, uh, closest to the fire. So that's one one way to save on the expensive material. Okay, that's really fascinating. I see what you mean. Now, in the in this book I just mentioned. They're talking about how the iron came from something called bog ore. I mean, do you know what that is? Like what I think, like what is that? And where did, did they have to mine for it or was it on the surface? Do you know anything about that? Uh, yeah, bog iron. It's, uh, it's a term that is used, uh, first when iron, iron was used, it, um, Man, man couldn't make it, so I guess that is one reason it was so highly valued, because uh, the first iron pieces came from the space, so it uh, it was uh, very exotic. 
material. Hmm. Um, but later on, when man learned how to produce iron, um, the value decreased, and uh, the iron itself is in the soil. Uh, I don't know how detailed I should go on this, but uh, basically um, the iron is in the soil and uh, with the water that runs through it, it takes the iron with with it. So it um, you can find bigger concentrations of iron in, it can be in the bottom of the lakes or in rivers and uh, some specific places and uh, also today if we walking in the nature um, you can see some water that is uh, got this rusty color and that that is a sign that the the soil around it contains a lot of iron so it is actually rust so and so if you're looking for a source of iron uh, you could have your eyes open for rusty water okay interesting and and how and do you know how they would actually harvest it in that time period like is i think isn't the bog or like these kind of clumps of uh i I don't know some mineral or rock or something and then they have to smelt it they have to like i don't really understand the process but like how would they even yeah so the process is uh uh, one heavy part in the process is uh, gathering the raw material. Uh, if, if you take it from the bottom of a lake, it uh, it's a big job. And uh, it was uh, probably done during winter when the ice is on top of the lake. Then it's easier to just uh, make a hole in the ice and dig dig up the... the uh, the soil from the bottom of the lake and um, then uh, this iron have to be extracted from from uh, this soil and that is done by uh, smelting it in a furnace so it is like a uh, first you have to dry dry it uh, to burn out the impurities and uh, make it dry all the moisture go away um, so it gets to a kind of a powder uh, and then you put this powder together with charcoal in a fur- furnace and uh, smelt it so it it builds a big lump uh, uh, um, on the bottom of the furnace and that is the that is iron uh, okay. Yeah. And did are any of the Viking era uh, furnaces have they like did any of those remain like were were those just made of stone or made of wood or how did they like I know I know like in the seventeen eighteen hundreds in where I live there were these huge blast furnaces and some of those uh, some of the artifacts still exist from that but that's obviously you know, a thousand, eight hundred to a thousand years later. Um, do, do, uh, do you know anything about those Viking period furnaces? Uh, yeah, they're, they built them out of clay and uh, 
they could be built in different ways. Uh, one way, since this uh, material, the raw material was uh, heavy and uh, difficult to carry around, it they did often move move around the furnaces instead of uh, bringing the the material to the furnace. Uh, so they brought the furnace to the material instead and okay. therefore they they built uh, quite simple furnaces out of clay which uh, there are a couple of different models but uh, one model that was uh, quite common is only for one time use so uh, depending on the size but you you did one burn and you might get uh, one one to two kilos of iron and then you uh, destroy the furnace and build a new one and it's often this uh, <clears throat> the bottom of the furnace uh, that we see traces of today and uh, yeah, we can uh, based on calculation and uh, experiments uh, you can estimate how how large and what the furnace looks like uh, so that is very interesting and have you personally ever done some of the, some of this process, even if even if in a modern way? Have you done some of uh, the creating of the the taking the raw material and processing it? I haven't done it myself. Uh, I would like to. Uh, re- I would really like to, but uh, I know I have seen uh, as a uh, visitor. I, I the process uh, takes uh, uh, many hours. So I, but I was uh, visiting a a group who made this uh, an experiment. So I I have seen how it's done, but I haven't done it myself. Okay, yeah, it would be really cool to see that on your Instagram. You know, you taking part in one of those. Yeah, it would be really really interesting to make my own iron. Ah, oh, so cool. So, um. So, so when I have taught, so where I live in West Virginia on the, on the border of Virginia, there's a real effort to preserve a lot of like the colonial settler frontier history. And so blacksmithing, like we have like literally at the end of our road, we have a guy who is a blacksmith. So there's just a lot of people out here who do a lot of that stuff. And we have living history museums that um, kind of showcase blacksmithing in the 1700s and whatnot. And one thing I found interesting was they talked about how in that period, um, the actual town blacksmith would not have been making his own iron, but there would have been someone who was like an iron monger, like a seller, who would travel around and sell like bars of iron to use. Um, in the Viking period, would it have been something similar where some kind of vendor would come to these little villages and sell them the mater- the blacksmith or the metal worker, give them the materials they need? Or would each town kind of have to do their own processing? Do you know anything about that? Mm, yes. Um, there are, I would say, both. Uh, it's uh, smaller farms, uh, probably made their own iron or well maybe not it really depends but there are uh, traces okay. of of um, like uh, 
areas who were specialized in making iron um, and then they sold the material that they, they didn't forge anything out of it they just made the material and then they sold it to a blacksmith so um, but yeah I, it was both uh, I think that w- came with time also in the beginning of the Iron Age uh, they probably probably made their own own iron more freco- frequently but later on in the Viking Age uh, some groups were specialized in making the iron itself and other groups did only the forging. Gotcha. More of it at the later Viking period, it would have been more trading as opposed to having to do everything yourself. Yeah, I think so. Okay. And in, in reading from that book, I mentioned before they talk about how while iron was very prevalent in Scandinavia, um, things like gold and, and I believe silver and copper, not so much, maybe copper, but not so much the other ones. So that would have had to have been imported or I guess stolen through raids and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, uh, there are a lot of uh, silver who was uh, stolen on uh, raids. Uh, and I think from some documentaries I watched, they would like steal coins from all the places they were attacking and then the, you they would melt them down, I guess, just as a trade metal and then I guess also to make their own things. I don't know enough about that. Uh, yeah, they did uh, make their own things um yeah so they they had uh, smiths who were working with silver but uh, yeah to get the material they they usually did uh, take coins or other pieces made out of silver if uh, uh, when they raided this uh, in England, uh, uh, these churches, mm-hmm. uh, they they found a lot of silver, uh, like silver crosses and uh, yeah, what uh, anything. So they used to melt melt those down and make their own uh, own silver. And pieces. was that like for jewelry and stuff like that? I know the women would have been highly decorated. Yeah, it's uh, mainly for uh, jewelry and uh, decoration. Okay, well, um, let's see. I guess it, what um, I guess what do you make today in your blacksmithing shop that would have been something that would have been made in the Viking era? Like, I know you're you're very obviously super inspired by the Viking period. What kinds of stuff do you make? that would be very similar, if not exactly the same as 800, 1,000 years ago? Mm. Well, the same it I do forge uh, axes and uh, knives that are uh, based on Viking Age finds and uh, also some uh, jewelry. Um, these uh, Thor's hammers are probably the most uh, known um i also for have uh i have made these velva so called velva staffs um that were usually usually forced out of iron uh, so i have made uh, replicas of uh, those as well 
Okay, well, we got a lot to talk about here. So is that how you say it? Vulva? Uh, Vulva, yeah. Vulva. Okay, that's V-O-L-V-A, and that means like a Viking cirrus, like a, you know, witch or, or, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. So what is the the Vulva staff? What is that? And I didn't know, I've seen what you've made, but I didn't know that's based on archaeology. Let's hear about that. Uh, the Vulva staff, um, it is a little bit, uh, we can't, as it often is in archaeology, we have to make guess. We have to guess uh, because there is no one saying exactly how it is. But uh, a Velva used a, her, her staff as a tool in her uh, um, in her rituals, and. Uh, it's a little bit de- debated exactly how it was used, but um, it's most likely used as more as a symbol um, that uh, this is a Velva and her staff. So, uh, yeah, it's more like a symbol for the profession. Okay, okay. So... Um, is it like a wand? Is it is it pretty big? It is. Uh, the ones I have made are uh, about half meters. So yeah, between 50 centimeters and one meter is uh, oh, okay. quite common. So yeah. So about a foot and, uh, and a half. Yeah, about. And uh, yeah, uh, like a wand that you said. Uh, that's true. And in the and the ones that have been found in the archaeology, they were made of iron, right? Yeah, they were. Wow, wow. You know, now that I think about it, when we were in Oslo, we visited the uh, the National Museum of Art, and they had a whole wing that was on kind of like Norwegian art, and there was an amazing, huge statue of a velva, a cirrus. Um, you know, kind of robed, kind of this kind of old crone witch in robes. And I believe she was holding a staff. So it must have been exactly what you're talking about, the the Velva staff. Yeah, and uh, the Velva, the word Velva could be translated to a staff carrier. Uh, so it uh, it is most likely that the Velvas uh, used a staff. Mm, fascinating. And uh, is there anything else you know about the Velva's role? Like, is there anything you know about these cirruses? Um, they often had, uh, they were high, high status and often rich and uh, respected. Uh, they were mo- often... It was more common that uh, women were working as uh, velvas. Uh, it was, uh, yeah, like a, a job, a profession they had uh, being a velva. So kind of uh, like our, I was going to say kind of like our modern day, like medium or a clairvoyant, you would kind of have one of these uh, seers come to your farm and kind of divine your 
the fate of the next uh, farming year or something like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Because I do think I've read, so in this, we've got a great book in English called uh, The Viking Spirit, An Introduction to Norse Mythology and Religion. And in it, he tells a story, I believe, about uh, Evelva, um, who has been, I guess it's some farming families who've had like a terrible year with their crops. And they're basically kind of at their wits end or really on the edge of survival. And I guess they they, they tell this, uh, they have this story where they invite the Velva over to kind of see what is going to happen in the next year. And if everything is going to return, you know, the seasons will uh, bless their crops and whatnot. So yeah, interesting. That's kind of how I could kind of perceive it is like our modern day medium. Like when somebody needs a little help with interpreting the signs or the future, et cetera. Hmm. Yeah. yeah I, I think so too. Um, you said something called a Thor's hammer. And I know, I hope we can talk about the mythology of Thor's hammer, but you just mentioned it in the archaeological record. What? So I, I have seen what you've made on your Instagram, but I had no idea, again, that this was something that people have dug up. What is it? What's the Thor's hammer? Is it a piece of jewelry? Like, what is it? Mm, yeah, the, the, the finds uh, that, uh, that have been found are uh, often uh, small pieces that are depicting uh, Thor's hammer, uh, Thor, the thunder god of in uh, Norse mythology, and it's said that he he's got a hammer that is called uh, Mjölnir, and uh, <clears throat> and uh, this is uh, it's depicted in uh, on rune stones as well, uh, but also in in jewelry uh, forged out of iron, silver, or gold. And would this be worn by the men or or the women or? It it could be worn by anyone. And do do the I guess do the archaeologists just think it's like a way of. Uh worship it worshiping thor is that kind of what they think this would be yeah i i think that in the beginning like this kind of pendants have been around for a long time even if they might not have been looked like a hammer like like we see it today but uh, people have been wearing clubs and uh, like uh, something that could uh, be compared to a hammer and uh, uh, it uh, it is worn for uh, it can be for for different things but giving strength or protection Um, but later on on in the end of iron age when we come to the viking age and uh, when Christianity started to take place here, it was also worn as um, like showing off that uh, I I uh, worship uh, the Asa, the Thor, Thor, for instance, and and the Norse uh, gods. So it represented that you were still pagan, that you weren't converting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, fascinating. And uh, so I'm, you're you're part of my uh, Scandinavian series, 
uh, of podcasts. And on the last one, I mentioned it, but I'll mention it again here because I think it's fascinating. One thing I've read is that Thor would have been the god worshipped by like the farming class because he represented uh, strength, warriors, farming, whereas Odin was more worshipped by the aristocracy, the high, the upper class. And uh, Odin had some traits that were considered effeminate, the magic element, um, which I found really interesting how you were saying most of the Velva were women. Um, because I guess from what I, my reading, it's kind of saying that to practice magic in the Viking period as a man would have been quite taboo. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it is uh, in the sources, uh, it is written that um, Odin got this uh, knowledge and he, he can work as a Velva, but, uh, but that uh, the others were kind of uh, looking at him as uh, more feminine mm. just because of that. Mm. Now, I don't want to get away from Thor's hammer. Would you be able to tell the mythology of Thor's, the creation of the hammer? is a myth who is telling how the Thor's hammer was made and uh, it is said that it's forged uh, out of uh, uh, it's forged by dwarves um, yeah so it was uh, Loki who used to trickster these other gods so he did uh, cut off uh, Sif's hair, who was uh, Thor's uh, wife. And uh, when Thor found out that uh, she she didn't have her be long, beautiful hair anim anymore, he immediately thought that this has to be Loki, and therefore he uh, got his hands on him and. Uh, did some uh, confrontation with Loki and uh, then he Loki got an idea that uh, yeah he will bring the hair back and uh, he will do this by um, kind of tricking the dwarves uh, into a competition so they would compete with each other to make the most beautiful things. So Loki made his way to the subterranean home of the dwarves and found the dwelling and forge of the master craftsman Ivaldi and his sons. They took pride and care in crafting not only the golden hair, but also the ship Shirbladner, which is a long ship, which was so big that it could carry all of the gods and their weapons at once, yet could be folded up and fit into a small bag and always had a favorable wind. And also Gangnir, which is Odin's spear, which never failed to hit its mark. Loki had accomplished his task, 
but he hadn't fully satisfied his itch for prankishness. So he went to the dwarf Brock, metalworker, and bet his head that Brock's famed brother, Sindri, sprayer of sparks, couldn't fashion three objects on par with the three that Ivaldi and his family had just made. Brock and Sindri accepted the challenge. Sindri laid a pigskin bellows on the hearth and instructed his brother to blow into it. Sindri worked for a long time with intense concentration until a fly, who was no other than Loki in disguise, landed on his hand and bit him. But the fly's interference was unsuccessful, for shortly thereafter, Sindri lifted out of the hearth Gulenborsti, a stout boar whose mane and bristles were made of gold so bright that it provided light in darkness, and could run faster and longer than any horse. Then Sindri placed a block of gold in the hearth and told Brock to keep blowing while he went out for a little while. Brock breathed into the pigskin steadfastly, but before too long, a fly buzzed around his head, setting on his neck and bit him hard. Yet still he kept blowing, and soon Sindri returned and took out of the fire Drupnir, Dripper, a splendid arm ring for which eight more rings of equal weight fell every ninth night. Then Sindri placed iron in the hearth and bade his brother to blow especially carefully and steadily this time, because the project was especially sensitive and would be spoiled if he were to falter. The fly seized his chance and stung Brock's eyelid, causing blood to flow into his eyes. Brock left his position to wipe his face and swat the fly away, which proved to be just long enough for the bellows to go flat. Sindri's face was grave, and he said that this misstep had come close to ruining the undertaking. Luckily, however, it was still salvageable, and before long, Sindri pulled a hammer out of the fire. Mjolnir, the hammer of Thor. He handed the hammer to Brock along with the ring and the boar and sent him off to Asgard to claim the payment they were due from Loki. When Loki and Brock both arrived in Asgard, the gods sat in council and allowed Loki to present what he had obtained first. He laid before them the shining hair, which went to Sif, the ship, which went to Frey, and the spear, which went to Odin. Then it was Brock's turn. The dwarf presented the ring to Odin, the boar to Frey, and at last, the hammer to Thor. This hammer, the dwarf proclaimed, had abilities that rivaled those of any other gifts the gods had received that day. Like Odin's spear, the hammer always hit its mark. Not only that, but when thrown, it would return to its owner's hand after striking his foe. Nevertheless, Brock had to admit that the hammer had a defect on account of the fly's interference. It was short in the handle. The gods decided that despite the hammer's flaw, it was the best of all the wondrous pieces of workmanship they had been given that day because it gave the gods their best defense yet against the giants. On that basis, they declared that Brock had rightfully won his bet with Loki and was entitled to his head. As before, Loki protested and offered to redeem himself, but the dwarf declared that the trickster had already caused enough grief and would be given no respite. Loki then dared Brock to catch him and took off running. He was promptly caught by Thor, however, and returned to the dwarf. Just as Brock was about to chop off Loki's head, the wily god thought of a way out at last. I promised you my head, he admitted, and then added slyly, but not my neck. 
My neck you must leave intact. Brock, enraged, had to concede that Loki had a point. So he took an awl and string and sewed Loki's lips together, taking care to inflict as much pain as possible, which he thought a fitting vengeance for the grief Loki's words had caused him. Basically, Thor always has his hammer, and he that's what he uses to vanquish and kill the giants, which are always kind of a problem for the the gods, right? Yeah, that's true. He uh, he he will need his hammer. Without it, he is uh, kind of powerless. Mm, interesting, and I can see how warriors in that time period would want to kind of. Uh, take on that energy right that they going into battle or going into a raid you would want that hammer kind of totem in a way right yeah uh yeah in that way it can uh, be as a symbol of uh, power right right now here's something i wonder why do you think do you have any ideas about like why the blacksmiths and metalsmiths in Norse mythology, why are they dwarves? It's, uh, I, I mean, I guess it, it's really, it's fascinating, but I wonder why are they all dwarves? Uh, I don't know, actually. Uh, I have been thinking, and uh, I have been wondering that too. Um, but it's uh, it's common also in in Norse mythology and and other sagas that, uh, that it's uh, dwarves. They are good craftsmen. I guess because, I guess, to get all of those metals back in the day would have had to do with mining and other, like you talked about, uh, pulling the, the soil up off of the bottom of lakes. It's all kind of like takes place in the underworld, like underground, like, you know, digging for tin or whatever, or a silver mine. So I guess, I guess just the act of trying to acquire the materials would have kind of formulated this mythology that there are these little creatures that live in these places that, are the ones that do all the smithing, I guess. Yeah, that could be. Could be. Um, are there so? Are there any other bits of um, Norse mythology that have to do with uh, blacksmithing that is that uh, y- it are you're really inspired by? There are a couple of sagas that uh, are um, telling about blacksmiths, but. Um, I think the most uh, the most inspiring is probably the one that is telling how the dwarves made Thor's hammer um, and the other the other artifacts. There are another uh, story about a uh, blacksmith uh, who is called Völund, but uh, that is not a nice story. So. <laughs> It's nothing to be inspired by. Well, what happens? Uh, well, it was a uh, a blacksmith. He was uh, forging very beautiful things, and he got uh, uh, kidnapped by the a king who wanted to have this blacksmith working for him. But 
this uh, the blacksmith was uh, named uh, Verlund. So Verlund Verlund wasn't really happy with this. So uh, he he tricked the king's family and uh, did uh, horrible things to to it and uh, escaped uh, later on. So was he a dwarf or was he a man? Uh, if I, I'm not sure. It could be that he actually was an elf. Oh, okay. Uh, but I, I not, I'm not sure about that. Okay, I just learned a little bit about the elves on the last podcast where uh, I was hearing about the folklore of Iceland and where the elf uh, lore is still quite alive in many ways. Um, now, when he, when, when this guy, when this blacksmith, he said he did these terrible things, what did he do? Did he kill these people or he, did he curse them or what did he do? Uh, yeah, he did kill them. Um, he, uh, uh, he did forge, since the king was ordering uh, stuff from this blacksmith, he did, uh, um, if I remember correctly, it, um, because the king did send his family to bring bring these uh, forged products to ki- to the king, so uh, and Verlund, I think it was the king's son who he did did kill, and uh, he forged um, um, drinking glasses out of his uh, skull, and uh, he, he did also. Uh, rape his daughter and uh, murder them all. <laughs> okay, so I see what you mean. <laughs> so, it got re- it got real dark. Yeah, it, it it is. And where do you? I haven't in my reading of the Norse mythology. I haven't come across that. Do you know where the source material is of that story? Is it one of the sagas? Did you say? Uh, yeah, it's one of the sagas, and uh, it is act. Actually depicted on a picture stone, which uh, on Gotland in southern part of Sweden, an island, are quite rich of this this picture stone, and they often have like uh, how should I describe? It's like a um, like a magazine where you. Uh, draw draw a, a something out of a story. So this uh, scene is uh, actually de- depicting but depicting uh, uh, the story of uh, Verlund. Okay, so it's like an illustration, an illustration of the story. Yeah, it's yeah illustration. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, now, what is a picture stone? A picture stone is. Uh, it's a yeah lar- large stone that they have carved a picture on, uh, which they wanted to tell something. Uh, it often is uh, pictures of uh, boats, and uh, yeah, so it could like uh, rune stones uh, are telling about. Um, on rune stones, we can read about uh, events or something big that happened. Um, it's the same with uh, picture stone, but instead of runes, they they are using 
pictures. Okay, gotcha. I understand now. Yeah, I've looked at a lot of pictures online of the rune stones that they just look so remarkable. Have you visited any of those sites? Uh, yeah, I have seen uh, and visited a couple of uh, rune stones and also picture stones. Now, how like do you have to travel really far to get to one of those, or are they, you know, are they all over the place, or is it is it a very um, obviously they're very special, but is it common or is it in Sweden? It's uh, very common. They are all over the place. Uh, it was during year thousand they were carving a lot of rune stones. So, yeah, there are a lot. Okay, and I've seen in a lot of pictures that the the line work, the carved part, will be red. Do you know anything about that? Uh, yes, that is. Uh, it is uh, most likely that they were not uh, red. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, like back back then, this is something that have come later on, but uh, they were, they could have been painted with uh, colors. Wow. Um, but uh, I think that uh, nowadays they, instead of when they are filling this these lines with paint, is more to so we can see it more clearly today. Gotcha, gotcha. But, okay. Uh, these days, when they are finding new new runestones or updating these, they are painting it white instead of red because that should be more authentic. Okay, interesting. And yeah, on the last episode, we were talking a little bit about. Excuse me. We were talking a little bit about um, the magical side of runes, and I remember when we were visiting this um, archaeological museum in in Bergen. Um, they had a whole series of runes that had been written out on little pieces of sticks, on little pieces of wood, and they were all sorts of things, from receipts to insults to um, like bragging about sexual conquest to um, magic. And when the last guest talked about how, I guess when people would be performing magic, they would take blood and they would smear it into the runes. So smear it onto the text that had been carved. And so I was just wondering if the red on those stones was supposed to represent blood or whatnot, but it was very interesting to hear from you that that's probably not accurate at all. Yeah, it's it's difficult to, for us to tell how how the runes were actually used. Uh, it's uh, <clears throat> uh, a, a debate on on that topic, but uh, what we know for sure it it is that they used for writing. Uh, but anything else is guesses more or less. So, how far from your house would it take to get to one of these things? The closest one is uh, maybe 20 minutes. Oh, wow. That's amazing, man. God, that, I mean, I just love, you know, Europe is just, I love Europe because there's just so much archaeology everywhere. It's wonderful. Yeah, it is. Now you, very interesting too. Now you told, I go on. You told um, on one of your Instagram posts, um, you kind of alluded to, having had this kind of powerful experience visiting visiting some place or some site um do you know what i'm talking about he said you and your wife went on this trip and had some kind of like 
very powerful experience. Do you, is that ringing a bell? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think I know. Uh, it, it was, uh, we were visiting a Bronze Age, um, or the, this, there is a place where a lot of rock carving is made uh, from, that is made on the Bronze Age. And there, there are a lot of uh, boats illustrated and uh, elks uh, uh, are carved into rocks. So uh, we were visiting that site and uh, it was very interesting to, to walk around and um, look at all, all the pictures that they have made. Yeah, when we so when we were in Oslo, I took the bus like ten minutes, like literally just on the edge of the city, and strange. And I got off the bus and walked through a little suburban street, and everything looks very modern. You know, you can see the fjord with like um, shipping containers and cranes, and um, just on the side of the sidewalk, like there's no one there. You know, this is not a museum. It's literally just on the side of the sidewalk in a patch of grass is one stone that had been carved 6,000 years ago by, you know, prehistoric hunters. And they carved a scene with elk. And I guess that would be your moose. And they had moose on it. It had deer on it. And, um, it, it, and it even had what is said on the little sign is probably the depiction of a little hunter. And it's just remarkable to, in you know, in our, in our modern time to stand at one of these places where people were doing something like that thousands of years ago and just uh, how much the landscape has transformed to modernity, I guess. But it's just kind of extraordinary to think that you're standing at an, at an ancient camp, an ancient hunting camp, you know? Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, also around here, where I live, there are a couple of, um, I don't know the right word. It's not a graveyard, but uh, like a, a Viking Age graveyard um, that are, are around. And it's a, it's a very special feeling when you're standing there. There are usually these... Uh, small hills that uh, they where the bodies were uh, placed so uh, yeah it's a special feeling standing there and watching on all these hills and graves uh, it just feels uh, unreal like uh, when we are uh, interested and we are reading and studying the culture and uh, um, for a moment, you are transported, mm. uh, like yeah, into their time, and uh, it's a special energy energy over there. Mm. I, I I get what you mean. It's almost uh, I think like an English word would that would kind of be an umbrella term for that is would be the word hallowed. Like it's a hallowed place, like a an ancient, a, you know, an ancient cemetery or a, you know. A, an old church or an old spiritual site or um, a battlefield, we'll say hallowed. And it kind of just means there's something of a spiritual, holy, 
numinous quality to a place. Do you, something does that kind of resonate with what you're saying? Mm, yeah, yeah, I agree. And did they leave the bodies there, or did they take them out? They did uh, leave them there. Oh, okay, so the the old, you know, the old Vikings are still still there. Yeah, <laughs> or actually, the most common way they did uh, these burials was to first uh, burn the bodies and then put them there. But uh, there are also graves who got. Uh, um, got their bodies just dug down there, so they are, they are still laying, laying there. Wow, that is pretty extraordinary. And um, yeah, in that book I mentioned earlier, the Viking spirit, it talks ab- about the elaborate Viking funerary practices, which are super intense. I mean, sometimes there's a, the sacrificing of a, a slave who's volunteered themselves. Sometimes there's like sexual acts. Um, it's just, this is just one historical description of a, of a funeral, lots of drinking, like days and days and days of just being totally intoxicated. And, uh, it's just wild. I mean, I'm sure that didn't happen all all over the place that that must've been for some special ritual or something, but, uh, it would certainly be interesting to learn more about that from someone on the podcast. Yeah, uh, it's interesting, and but uh, I agree with you. It as this is one, it's only one source, so right. it's uh, difficult to tell how how it was in general. Um, but one in- interesting thing is that, uh, well, what we can read in Norse mythology, they are most likely to have believed in reincarnation mm. and. Uh, in some of these graves, we can see that stones have been placed on the body. And uh, there are a couple of theories why, but one of them is to, like, uh, holding the person in its body for a little bit longer time, than, so it just don't continue into the next and into reincarnation that is uh, also interesting okay i've never heard that that is fascinating now it would that have been a punishment would you have done that to someone you hate that you don't want to reincarnate or is that just like or was that more of a um some kind of beneficial ritual to just help the spiritual process and uh like do, do, do is there any ideas archaeologically why they would do that do you get what i'm saying uh, yeah, uh, it could be both. Uh, it uh, if you don't like uh, the person to to get up, uh, you could hold him there. But uh, also to uh, delay, so the person can come back at a more suitable time. Okay, uh, right. So to say, right. Yeah. So it can it can be both. Also beneficial as well. Okay, I had no idea that they believed in reincarnation. I know the ancient Celtic people did. Um and I know that they the Viking people believed in in certainly an afterlife with Valhalla and uh the warriors trying to go there to join Odin in the final fight of Ragnarok with the giants and with the Loki and his uh and his kind of grotesque children 
Um, let's see. Well, what, where should we go from here? I mean, we could kind of change topics a little bit. There's something you've talked about on your Instagram that I thought is interesting called Arsgang, the year walk. I don't know anything about that. What is that? Uh, yeah, that is also a ritual that is done to see, see in, in the future uh, what will happen the next uh, coming year in this case. Uh, or gong if, if it's translated directly, or is year gong is walk, so year walk. Um, this was uh, more common, let's say, uh, during medieval times, but it, it is believed that this ritual got its roots uh, long longer back. Um, the Vikings did perform something that is called Uteseta. And uh, that is, uh, well, it's kind of uh, the same purpose. It's done in a different way, but uh, uh, with the same purpose. But this was uh, forbidden when when uh, Christianity came to here to Scandinavia. They wanted to get rid of all, all these kind of uh, rituals. So... So it's believed that uh, Orskong was uh, taking its place instead. Okay, and would um, would the Orskong, would it have been for both men and women, for the young and the old, or was there a certain, um, was there a certain kind of structure to it? Mm, yeah, it was for, for everyone. It was something that you did uh, by yourself. You wasn't a... Uh, were not allowed to uh, talk with anyone, uh, or you could uh, not even say that you are going for a year walk. Uh, so it was uh, something that you did by yourself and uh, and uh, kind of in secret. And would you kind of leave society? Would you like walk away from your farm and disappear into the wilderness for a year? Is that kind of what it's saying? Uh, no, it. Uh, Orskong could be uh, performed on different places, but but a common place was uh, around the church, and the ritual is basically that you go out and walk uh, three times around the church or a field or anything that is special to you. So you walk three times around it, and uh, during that walk, you will see signs that tells you what will come the the coming year. Okay. And uh, and this was performed on uh, on the night. It the best time to do this was uh, during New Year's Eve, but it all it could also be performed. Uh, any time of the year, but there were uh, certain nights that were more powerful than others. 
Okay, so I didn't quite understand this. So it's not that it's a walk that takes a year. It's a walk where you learn about the next year. Yeah, that's true. Okay, and uh, okay, fascinating, fascinating. Have you done it? I haven't done it, no. Uh, I see, I used to look at these uh, rituals like tools, uh, uh, that you can take as help if you if you need help with uh, something uh, to feel better you can use these tools and uh, uh, so far i have found other ways than doing a orsgong but it would be interesting i have thought of it and uh, uh, will probably Try it one day. So it sounds almost like in what we would say today, like a, some kind of like a silent meditation in many ways, other than doing the, the mm. circling. But very fascinating. Now you can do you consider? I know, like in, on your account, um, you know, you're talking a lot about uh, the pagan life of these people. Do you consider yourself a pagan? Uh, yeah, I would say. Say so. Do you, do many people in Sweden or are many people atheists or are they still Christians or just kind of like the kind of Christian that goes to church a few times a year? Like, or is there really like a big pagan revival there? Mm, I wouldn't say so. It's not. Um, there are all there are all kind of uh, sorts, but uh, the general. Swede is uh, not uh, religious at all, gotcha. and it's not uh, important. Okay, okay, gotcha. So the churches are more just kind of like um, history that you kind of keep up. They're not so much, not as much in practice as, of course, centuries before. Yeah, that's, uh, I would say it. it is like that. Now, um, what do you mean by paganism? Do you mean like an animistic view of the natural world, that, that that nature is filled with spirits in the rocks, spirits in the trees, spirits in the animals? Like, could you kind of describe what you mean? Um, yeah, I see it uh, like that, more in a animistic way. Do you believe in some of like the, like, do you believe in some of the folkloric stuff, like trolls or any of the or the elves like do you think that th these are actual real kind of unseen beings or do you think that like that is outdated folklore mythology or do you is part of your paganism that you believe that these things actually do exist uh i see these as the same way as i see the rituals that they are tools and uh also metaphors for other things. So I don't uh, think that they, there are uh, actual okay. beings. Right. I guess that's probably how I would see it. Though sometimes I, I wonder. But uh, yeah, probably see it as metaphors. But um, I certainly have friends that claim to see all sorts of strange stuff. So who knows? Hmm, yeah. Yeah, who knows? Now, as you're talking about tools, I'm just going to return to the whole blacksmithing. Now, what is the a Viking key? Because I know that's something that you make a bunch of. Yeah, it's um, 
there are a couple of different uh, types of key and uh, types of locks uh, that were used. They had uh, uh, padlocks. It could be permanent locks that were attached to a chest or door. Um, and they did work a little bit different. But uh, one uh, iconic key is... Uh, uh, it's a bit difficult to describe with words, but uh, I think many many have seen seen it's a, a key that is bent like an L, and then it got uh, a couple of teeth pointing out, um, and it looks like uh, yeah, one might first wonder how how it works, but uh, it is an actual key who works uh, into a into a fitting lock. Okay, so was, these would have been functional keys. They're not um, something symbolic like the 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 hammer, Thor's hammer. This was actually just a functional tool. Yeah, it was a functional tool, but it also was a symbol. Um, it would represent, um, like, if um, if see a pe- if you see a person with a key you know that uh, this per- person might own a farm he he have or i should say she because it was often the women who had control of of the farm and they wore the key as a symbol of their power their power and uh, it was also uh, as a status symbol and therefore these keys could also be uh, very decorative since it was worn visible and uh, yeah, maybe as uh, a piece of jewelry, even if it was uh, a functional tool, but it was should still be beautiful. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, it seems as though human beings have always kind of identified their status through the things they adorn their body with. That's really fascinating. Are there so? Is there anything else that um, would have been being made by the blacksmith of that time period that is kind of unique or something you really like that we wouldn't necessarily think of? Like not just a, a tool to work the the land or the farm or an axe or anything like that, but something interesting like these Viking keys. Is there anything else that um, that you find unique? Uh, yeah, oat rings. Those are in- interesting. Oat rings. They are were probably used. Uh, they could be look uh, a bit different. It could be large iron rings, or it could be uh, bracelets as well. And it was kind of used uh, like our wedding rings today. That uh, you are swearing an oath. And wearing the ring as uh, proof of that, uh, so th- that is. Uh, but um, yeah, these were often also decorated uh, somehow. And uh, if we look at these forged uh, oat rings, uh, we can see different uh, interesting details. Um, some got uh, Thor's hammers on them. Hmm. Uh, it could be like a hanging piece or or a hammer incorporated in the design. 
and uh, actually the oldest uh, law text that we got in Sweden is uh, written on an oat ring. Really? Uh, yeah, so it was uh, it was used as a door handle to the church for a very long time, but uh, but uh, then uh, experts noticed that there are a lot of runes carved here, so and they translated it, so they they are now know that it is an old law. Do you recall what the law was saying? It was uh, something. Uh, what kind of penalty? If it ha- it has something, how much one sh- should pay as penalty? If uh, was it if they have stolen some uh, cattle like oxes or cows? Oh, cattle. I think it, okay. it was something uh, something like that. Okay. Wow. Wow. It's yeah, that's what I found so interesting when we were at that museum in in Bergen. Um, just what people wrote on these little sticks, the runes. It's just it's some of it is so mundane. Some of it is literally just a receipt for like buying flour or something, or just uh, saying that a certain individual owns this thing or owns that thing. And it's just kind of it's interesting what kind of um, early languages were used for some of the simplest some of the simplest. Uh, forms of communication you know Mm. yeah it is and uh, it has also been found a love letter who was written on a piece of uh, birch bark uh, which is also a nice thing to to see (laughs) well well since we kind of talked about all this background stuff why don't we talk for a little bit about just your process like talk about um you know, working in your shop, just, uh, you know, I know you have very, you have, you use modern tools, but, um, yeah, let's just hear about what it's like for you every day. Well, I am forging most of the days, but they look very different because I am forging, uh, anything from, I, uh, I forge a lot of jewelry, but I also forge, uh, like uh, gates and uh, and uh, everyday things like hinges and uh, so it's it's a big uh, variation what what I forge during the days. Most of it is uh, commissions uh, at the moment, uh, but I also got my own uh, collection that I'm uh, selling online. Yeah, I got my my website uh, lufolk.com and uh, there I show show my work and also I'm also present on social media. I got a YouTube channel where I like to show how I forge my uh, uh, part of the product and also want to learn uh, other other how to forge, learn about different techniques. And uh, on uh, Instagram, I, I also tell these stories um, a lot from uh, Norse mythology and the Viking Age, and also showing, showing a little uh, part of the 
forging process and uh, what it looks like when it's made. <laughs> 